3: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring
1: Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders.
4: Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 14. I have some great stories for you today. So sit back, relax, close your eyes. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we're going to hear the first part of Jack Shade in the Forest of Souls by Rachel Pollock. This is quite a long piece, almost two hours, which is why we'll be listening to it in two parts. Rachel Pollock is the author of 35 books of fiction and non-fiction, including Unquenchable Fire, winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and Godmother Night, winner of the World Fantasy Award. Rachel's books have been translated into 14 languages and are sold all over the world. Her most recent work is The Burning Serpent Oracle, co-created with Robert M. Place. Her new novel, The Child Eater, is coming out in England this month, and in the U.S. in the spring of 2015. You can visit her website at rachelpollock.com, and The link is on our website, naturally. It's narrated for us by Larry Oliver, a professional voiceover artist from the States who enjoys reading, hiking, yoga, Zumba, and cooking. He has narrated several audiobooks available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes, narrated documentary films, done commercials, corporate training videos, and much more. Go and take a listen to him on SoundCloud. You can find the link on the Triple F website. And so, here it is
3: Jack Shade, known in varied places and times as Journeyman Jack, or Jack Sad, or Handsome Johnny, though not anymore, or Jack Summer, or Johnny Poet. Though not for a long time, or even Jack Thief was plain old-fashioned poker. That was Jack's name for it, not because the game itself was antiquated, it was Texas Hold'em, the TV game as Jack thought of it, but because of the venue, a private hotel room, comfortable, elegant even, yet unlicensed and by private invitation only. In the age of Indian casinos, No more than a few hours' drive from anywhere. Jack knew that most poker was played online these days, split-screen, multi-action, or in live tournaments and open cash games held in the big casinos of Vegas, Foxwoods, or Macau. Jack didn't like casinos. He'd never liked them, though for years he was willing to go where the action was. But after a certain night in the Ibis Casino, a game palace most players had never heard of and would never see, where all in meant something very different from betting on your entire stack of chips, Jack avoided even the glossiest, bright for TV game centers and only played his quaint private no limit matchups. Luckily for Jack, though not always, luck being luck. There were enough serious money people who knew of Jack Gamble, or Jack Spade as some called him, though not to his face, that he could more or less summon a game to his private table at the Hotel de Rêve Noir, which, despite its Gallic name, was in New York on 35th Street, a block from the J.P. Morgan Museum, where Jack sometimes went to sit with the 15th-century Visconti Svarza Tarot Cards. Jack lived in the De Rêve Noir, possibly why some people called him Johnny Dream, but no one in the game had to know that. Let them think he came in from somewhere else. Jack didn't like people to know where he lived, an old habit that was still useful. The game, sometimes called Shade's Choice, took place on the 11th floor, the top floor of the small hotel, where despite the larger buildings all around, the full-length windows looked out to the Empire State Antenna. Jack was one of the few people who knew what signal that antenna actually sent and the message it relayed back to the Chrysler Building's ever-patient gargoyles, and in the other direction to a small brick house on Roosevelt Island where Peter Midnight once played a reckless game of cards with a traveler who outraged fashion in a black cravat. Jack always dressed for poker. Tonight he was wearing a loosely tailored silk suit, deep sea green, with a yellow shirt and a mauve tie, undone and draped around his neck. His ropey brown hair was cut rough as if he'd hacked at it himself when drunk one night or, as someone once said, as if he'd gone to a blind barber. The furniture in the room was old and carved, somehow heavy, graceful and comfortable all at once, with influences from French and Chinese. The mahogany table and chairs carried so many layers, generations of lacquer and polish, that neither spilled drinks nor the sharp edges of those obscene good-luck charms from Laos that some gamblers like to fondle could possibly harm them. Even the drink stands by each player looked like they might once have held champagne flutes at Versailles. In fact, they'd originally served as writing platforms for a poetry contest a very long time ago. Neither the drinks nor the furniture held anyone's attention right now. It was ten in the morning, twelve hours since Mr. Dickens, the white-haired dealer with the long spidery fingers, had given out the first cards. There were nine players, always nine in Jack's game, but everyone knew that only two of them counted, Jack Gamble and the blindfolded Norwegian girl. Jack thought of her that way because she'd once won an online tournament with a block-up to stop her ever looking at her cards, playing the players instead of her hand. The girl had been playing poker since she was 15 and pro almost that long. And yet she looked, Jack thought, all sweet and round, like she belonged more to PTO bake sale than a game with a million dollars on the table. There were some who thought she might be the rarest of creatures, a secret traveler. But Jack was sure that whatever talent she had was rooted in poker. Though he played in the highest-stakes games, Jack was not a pro. Poker just was not his only source of income. Some years, it wasn't even the largest, though in others it was all that paid the bills. Pro or not, Jack knew something about cards. Right now, he held a pair of tens, spade and club, a decent hand in hold 'em where two cards was all you got, and you had to combine them with five face up community cards on the table to try and make your own best five card hand. The five card board had come up ten, king, seven, all hearts, and then a nine, again a heart, and finally. A second king, the king of clubs. So Jack had a full house, three tens and two kings, nearly a dream hand. But the girl had gone all in, and now the nearly was making him crazy. She could easily have a straight or, better yet, a flush. All she'd need for that is for one of her two cards to be a heart to go along with the four hearts on the board. Those were good hands, enough, really, for someone to ship all her money into the pot. But suppose she had a king seven or a king nine. Then she'd have kings full, three kings and a pair. There was no greater curse in Hold'em than for someone else to have a bigger full house. And she'd put her money in on the king, not the fourth heart. She could have just been waiting, but if he called and lost, it would leave him with a long haul to get back even. He glanced at Charlie, but the old man sat so still he might have been a clay dealer buried with a Chinese emperor. There was no clock for the girl to call on Jack, the way she might have done in some casino tournament. But Jack knew she could ask Charlie, and he would tell her to the second how long Jack had been deliberating. Jack leaned back in his chair, turned a single black chip over and over. He was almost ready to fold. That damn tell seemed too obvious to be real when he saw something that wasn't there. Barely visible even to him, and just for an instant, a golden foxtail swept along the first four cards on the board, the hearts lingering just for a moment on the king. Jack kept his face stone, but he could feel a shock like an electric current in the long scar that traced his right jawbone. A flush. The girl had the ace of hearts, and the four hearts on the table had given her a lock. If all she needed was a flush, she'd gone all in because how could you not? But she knew it was a risk, and now she'd lost. Jack was just about to move in his chips when behind him the door opened. Jack's hand froze no more than an inch from his chips. Just in a few seconds more, he thought. Just this one call. But it was no use. He knew no one but the hotel owner, Irene Yao, would ever have opened that door without being summoned, and Irene would open it for one reason only. Someone had shown up with Jack Shade's business card. As if he needed any more proof, her soft voice, its rough edge of age worn smooth with grace said simply, Mr. Shade. It was only Mr. Shade when it was business. Michelle, Jack said, and turned around, and of course there it was, as always on a small silver tray a cream-colored card that contained only four lines, John Shade, and below that, Traveler, then Hotel de Rêve Noir, New York, and in the final line, no words, only a silhouette of a chess piece, the Horsehead Knight in the classic design, named for 19th-century chess master Howard Stoughton. Jack nodded to the girl. By fold, he said. Just a few seconds more. But the rule was simple. Everything stopped when the black knight appeared. He stood up and nodded to the dealer. Mr. Dickens, he said. Will you please cash in my chips and hold the money till I return? Of course, the old man said. Harry Barnett, a pork trader from Detroit, said, What the hell? You're cashing in just like that? I flew in for this game. I had to wait two goddamn months for a seat, and now you're just leaving? The girl stared at him, her apple pie face suddenly all planes and angles. Shut up, Harry, she said, and though Barnett opened his angry mouth, nothing came out. To Jack, the girl said, A pleasure to play with you, Jack. You too, Annette, Shade said, then followed Irene out the door. Jack Shade met his clients in a small office on the hotel's second floor. All that made it an office, really, was Jack's use of it. There were no computers or file cabinets, not even any phones. The only furniture was an old library table with three red leather chairs. The only amenity was a cut glass decanter filled with water in two heavy crystal glasses. The client's name was William Barlow. Will, as he said to call him, Mr. Barlow didn't look whimsical enough for Will. With his thin hair and saggy cheeks and his small nervous eyes, he looked about sixty-five but was probably no more than fifty. Overweight and lumpy, despite his expensive suit's attempt to smooth him, he breathed heavily as if he'd just run up and down Irene's polished ebony stairs. It probably was just stress. People were never at their best when they came to see John Shade. Mr. Barlow, Jack said, do you mind telling me how you got my card? (sighs) It was my wife's, Barlow said, and his head turned slightly to the left, as he might find her standing there. When she, when I was going through her things, I found it. In a jewelry drawer. It's not not a place I ever would have looked when she was alive, Jack thought. He asked, Do you have any sense of just why your wife had my card? You must have given it to her some time ago. Do you teach workshops? I mean, Alice used to go to a lot of work- workshops. I don't teach. Jack said. Barlow squinted at Jack. What do you do? You came to see me, Mr. Barlow. May I ask why? Now Barlow seemed intent, studying the grain in the table. Strange things have been happening, he said. Really? He took a breath. At first, I thought I was dreaming. It was at night, mostly. But then it started during the day, and I thought... He stopped, stared at his hands in his lap. I thought maybe I was, you know. He didn't finish the sentence, but a moment later looked up. But then I thought, maybe what if I wasn't? What if it was all real? Alice was into all this, all this strange stuff. If anyone could find a way, but if she was suffering. Mr. Shade, I couldn't stand that. Jack said, Do you mind telling me about the strange things? As if he hadn't heard the question, Barlow went on. I was supposed to go first. I mean, look at me. Alice kept fit. She watched what she ate. My biggest fear was always how she would get by after, after I was gone. And then suddenly, it's all wrong. But at least I thought, at least... She won't have to stay on alone. But if she's suffering... Tell me about the strange things. Barlow nodded. I'm sorry. He took a breath. About to speak again, he glanced over at the water decanter, pressed his lips together, and may I... Yes, of course, Jack said, relieved he would not have to find a moment to casually suggest his client drink a glass of water. I'll join you he said after Barlow had poured his glass. Jack poured himself exactly half a glass, which he drank down while keeping his eyes fixed on Barlow. The usual shiver along the spine jolted Jack, and he watched Barlow to see if he felt anything, but the client showed no signs of a reaction. Blissful ignorance, Jack thought, and realized how much time had passed. How many clients since a man with a knife had called him Jack the Unknowing? Barlow looked around for a napkin, then in his pockets for a handkerchief, and finally just wiped his lips with his finger as Poker Jack kept the smile from his face. The client said, I guess the first thing was the voices, the whispers. The sounds, you know. They weren't inside me or telling me to do things. It wasn't like that, he sighed. It started a week or so after Alice's death. I was in bed, still not used to being alone there, and watching the news. Alice used to hate it when I did that. Said she didn't want those images in her dreams. And there I was doing it. I felt so guilty. Mr. Barlow, the voices? The fleshy head bobbed up and down. Right. Sorry. Uh, well, I heard sounds, voices, like when you're at a conference and there's whispering across the table or something, and you can hear them, but you can't make out the words. I figured maybe it was on the TV, one channel bleeding into another, so I turned it off, and the whisper just got louder. I mean really loud like a whole building full of people all whispering to each other not a building jack thought and he wished to hell that however alice barlow had gotten hold of jack's knight she'd thrown the cart away instead of keeping it somewhere her husband could pick it up and get the overwhelming urge to go see john shade traveler barlow said this went on for days mr shade Every night, I thought I was, you know, that the grief had gotten too much for me. I finally told my doctor, and he said it was normal. Sure as hell didn't feel normal, and gave me some pills to sleep. It worked for a couple of days, but then I woke up. It was three in the morning, and the damn whispers were louder than ever. Then, one night, I got the horrible idea they were really there, not in the house, but in the backyard. I don't know why, but once I thought it, I couldn't stand it, so I put on my bathrobe and went down to the kitchen. I made sure to make lots of noise to scare anyone away, but when I got to the kitchen, everything looked normal. I mean, it was still dark, but the door light was on and the moon was pretty bright, and I could see the patio Alice had me make, and the flagstones, and it all looked fine, normal, but the voices, they were still there, louder than ever, but still whispers, so I couldn't make out a word. And so you opened the door, Jack said. Barlow stared at him. You thought if you could prove to yourself once and for all that the whispers weren't real, They would have to go away. Barlow nodded. Let me guess what you saw. A forest? Shaking now, Barlow nodded again. Dense trees with twisted branches and no leaves, going on as far as you could see, in flames. A kind of faint fire, so pale it didn't give off any light or heat or even burn any of the trees. Barlow whispered, "'Oh, God!' "'Oh, my God, I'm not crazy?' Jack managed to keep the regret out of his voice as he said, "'No, Mr. Barlow, you're not crazy at all.' Barlow sat back in the chair, mouth open. Jack said, "'So you slammed the door and ran inside. Now tell me, is that when you found my card?' Barlow half-whispered, "'Yes!' Behind him, for just a moment, Jack saw the flash of a golden foxtail, as it brushed over Barlow's shoulders and then was gone. A lot of good you are. You give me help on one hand, too late for me to use, but you couldn't warn me this was coming? Out loud he said, Mr. Barlow, what you saw was not a hallucination or a dream. It's a real place, though very few people actually see it. At least not while alive. Then why am I seeing it? I'm not anything special. I've never been, you know, psychic or anything. It's not about you, Mr. Barlow. But I'm—oh, God, it's Alice. Of course. How could I be so— His hands began to twitch, and he clasped them together. Is she, you know, a ghost? There are no such things as ghosts, Jack Shade said. At least not the way you see in movies. But sometimes people get stuck. Sometimes, he thought, they can't bear being dead. And every now and then, someone alive gets pulled in and can't get back. Or someone sends them there, and that was the worst of all. Barlow said, Mr. Shade, can you help her? Can you get her out? Is that why she had your card? I don't really know why she had my card, but I'll try to open a way for her. May I ask, what do you— He looked away. My fee is fifty thousand dollars, Jack said. Maybe he couldn't actually refuse someone who had his card. But his clients didn't have to know that. Barlow hardly seemed to care as he stared again at the desk. This place, where Alice is, is it hell? No, it's actually just what you saw. Twisted trees in cold fire. Does it have a name? Yes. It's called The Forest of Souls. Jack arrived the next morning at Barlow's house just after dawn. Gone were Gambler Jack's silk suits and bright shirts and ties. In their place, he wore a black shirt with black buttons and black jeans over black boots. Black Jack Traveler. He spent two days and nights in the Westchester McMansion, a house that reminded him of the bland food your mother gave you after stomach flu. The dull creams and light browns of the walls were matched by furniture that might have belonged in a conference room. Barlow had said that Alice took courses and workshops and, in fact, There were large, faceted crystals and stone incense holders on knick-knack shelves in the living room, and a few books scattered around the paneled den with breathless promises of some imminent shift in world consciousness. Clearly, Jack thought, if they had any idea what that term actually meant, they would never dare to write a word or promises to choose quantum reality, you want and deserve. Somehow, it all seemed like dust floating on a deep, impenetrable pool, a well of emptiness. Only in Alice's dressing room did color manage to break through the dull fog, with yellow walls and light blue trim to match the bottles of perfume and vials and jars of European creams and makeup. The first time Jack went in there, he just stood in the center of the room and breathed deeply, as if he could take the color into his lungs and spread it through his body. He realized he'd been closing himself down in the rest of the house, maybe even before he entered it, in a kind of psychic expectation. Only here could he find a place to begin his search for trace elements of Alice Barlow. Jack spent a lot of time in that room. The door closed to his client, the lights full tilt as he touched and smelled Alice's clothes, her makeup, each elaborate bottle of perfume. He lined his eyes with violet coal and painted his lips dark, smoky red, and probably would have tried on some of her clothes if Alice had not dieted herself down to a size two. A wedding picture in the living room had shown Alice at about an eight. By the time of her death, apparently, a significant part of her had already vanished. Some women diet for social approval or self-esteem, but Jack was pretty sure Alice did it to diminish her place in the world. "'What were you running from?' he whispered to the mirror as he held a silk camisole against his cheek. "'Was it Barlow?' Jack shook his head. The man was as dull as the house. He wasn't the cause of Alice's desire to disappear. He was just part of her strategy. Jack had made sure to warn Barlow not to come in during his psychic investigatory procedures in the dressing room. Subtle, even dangerous energies ran through the room at such times, he said. And if Barlow just knocked on the door... He could bring down the entire framework Jack was constructing. All of that was partly true, but mostly Jack didn't want to repeat the scene of some years back when a client had walked in on Jack Shade wearing his dead wife's clingy black dress. Outside the dressing room, Jack talked with Barlow for hours about Alice, their marriage, the things they did together, Alice's hobbies and interests, which apparently came and went. She tried knitting, Book clubs, French cooking, but gave them all up after a few months. The cosmic crystal phase had lasted longer than most, nearly a year when she died, but Barlow suspected it had already begun to fade. There'd been a lot more of the dolls and things he said, and then one day he noticed she'd gotten rid of about half of them. He'd never ask her what she'd done with them. There were no kids, Alice had had medical issues, Barlow said, and when she said she didn't want to adopt, he just agreed. Maybe I should have pushed it, he told Jack. Maybe she would have been happier. Jack didn't know if that was true. So much of what Barlow said seemed layered over with guilt like archaeological sediment. Maybe if he'd done more, he said read some of her books, joined the cooking classes. They could have traveled more. She always seemed to pick up on trips, especially Paris. She loved Paris, just like the song, Jack thought. Most of all, Barlow built palaces of guilt around the fact that Alice had died at all, at least before him. He was the one who broke his diet, whose numbers had crept up despite the statins, and the dreadful low-salt food. All his preparations, the will, the retirement accounts, they all began with the same assumption, that Alice would outlive him. How did she die? Jack asked. They were sitting at a brown oval dining table. Aneurysm, Barlow said. Undetectable and as unexpected as a thunderstorm when the Weather Bureau had promised a sunny day. How could that happen? Barlow asked. I don't know, Jack said. I'm not a doctor or a theologian. He knew he was being hard, but he'd never get anything done if he had to hold the client's hand all day. Barlow blinked, stared at Jack a moment, then said, Mr. Shade, can you find her in that place, that forest? Yes. And release her? Yes. Jack might have said, I can try. But in fact, he'd succeeded in every case but one and that one was special. Barlow said, and I will stop hearing those noises and seeing the trees? Yes. Barlow looked down at the table. When when you release her, where will she go? I don't know, Jack said. I have no idea. The first night Jack was there, Barlow had asked if they should stay up together and wait for the whispers to manifest a term that probably came from one of Alice's workshops. It didn't work that way, Jack said. The forest tended to conceal itself when a traveler came to investigate. He told Barlow he'd have to go track it down himself. He didn't say that, in fact, he knew exactly where the entrance was, and it was a garage on West 54th Street. Jack slept that first night in the guest room and realized almost immediately it was a mistake. Many women saw their guest rooms as a chance to indulge their more extreme decorating ideas. But this one looked like it was copied from a magazine or even a furniture catalog. The white bedding, the dull peach-colored walls, fake flowers, and the fake antique picture. They were all as lifeless as a plastic dollhouse. Despite what he'd told Barlow, Jack went down to the kitchen in the middle of the night. He walked past the butcher block counter and island stove to open the back door. With his head cocked slightly to the left, he said quietly, Alice, where are you? Very faintly, he heard the whispers of the forest. Far away and nothing like the roar Barlow had heard and when he stepped outside, all he saw was the patio and lawn furniture, more dead than Alice Barlow. The next day, he told Barlow he needed to sleep in Alice's bed. At first, he thought the client would object, but no, Barlow just nodded, and that evening left fresh sheets neatly folded on the king-size bed and went off to sleep on the couch. Jack smiled as he changed the sheets. William Barlow Might have to surrender his bed, but damned if he would change the linens. Jack was just done when Barlow came to the door with an armful of towels and what looked like shampoo and conditioner. He said, If you want to step out a moment, I'll freshen up the bathroom for you. That's okay, Jack said, and reached out to take the towels and hair products. Barlow hesitated, then nodded and left. Jack watched for a moment, then closed the door. Earlier in the day, Jack had pocketed a loose bracelet of silver tiles from Alice's dress
0: Real Noom user
2: compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: room. Now, as he held it, he thought about the fact that Barlow had kept everything intact in his dead wife's room. A check of the closets and drawers in the master bedroom confirmed his guess that nothing of Alice remained. The walk-in closet, home now to a lonely rack of suits, So why the shrine in the dressing room? It took no more than a few seconds to figure out which side of the bed was Alice's. It wasn't physical. Barlow hadn't left a trough in the firm mattress. But when Jack tried the left side, he began to wheeze and cough, an effect that vanished as soon as he rolled to the right. On that side, there was only a sense of lightness, a lack of any presence at all. And yet she was there. He could feel her all around him, especially in the bracelet that pressed against his wrist, as if Alice Barlow was taking hold of him. That lightness, Jack realized, had been there all along. It was there before she died. It was what she left behind. How did you get so lost? Jack whispered in tears. What happened to you? Then he held up his left wrist with the bracelet before his eyes. Louder than before, he said, I'm coming for you, Alice. My name is John Shade, and I will find you. I will find you and set you free. Suddenly exhausted, Jack dropped his arm and settled his head against the too-thin hypoallergenic pillow. For just an instant, Heat flared in the bracelet so intense Jack almost tore it off, but then it went cold again, as chill as moonlight. Tired as he was, he still didn't expect to sleep that night, so it came as a kind of distant surprise when his eyes pulled down, his limbs grew sullen, and then he was gone. He dreamed he was walking in the forest, only it was disguised, the way it so often was. Even in the dream, he remembered telling that to Barlow. This time, it appeared as some kind of march or demonstration in a city that may have been Manhattan. All around him, everyone was holding signs or shouting slogans. Only he couldn't read the signs or understand the loud chants. And then he realized the souls, the lost, they were not the people in the march. The people were the trees. The souls were trapped inside the fake demonstrators, unable to speak or to tell Jack what they needed. The fire, so cold, so pale, wound around the tree people with their signs like a thin fog. Jack tried to speak, but his words came out all thick, as if his jaw moved too slowly. So he reached up to massage it, loosen his tongue. He was several seconds rubbing his lower face before he realized there was no scar. He was back the way he was before, before everything fell apart. Back then, he was Handsome Johnny, and being a traveler was, well, something that made you better than other people, all the dumb William Barlows of the world. Disgust twisted his insides. He didn't want to lose his scars. He deserved them. He needed them. They made sure he never forgot. All around him, the people, the trees, stamped and shook their signs. If they were trying to tell him something, they were wasting their time. The signs meant nothing. The voices just scrambled sounds. Tree language. He remembered now that he was on a mission, and he called out, Alice, Alice Barlow, are you here somewhere? Can you show yourself? His eyes caught a flash of motion to the right, and he turned in time to see a thin woman in a pale red dress dart behind the crowd of demonstrators and head toward a kitchen supply shop. Alice, wait, he called above the noise of the demonstrators, pushing aside the tree people, who took no notice of him. He made his way in her direction. It was only when he got free of the crowd and their signs and could see that she had stopped in front of the show window, full of knives, that he could see it wasn't Alice Barlow. It wasn't even a woman, but just a girl. Fourteen years old, arms and legs stick-thin, long, straight hair. Her mother's hair. Dyed black, sharp and bright against the pale red dress that echoed the faint fire flickering through the forest. Oh, God, Jack whispered. Oh, my God, Eugenia. She turned around now, slowly with that adolescent drama smile, and lowered her head slightly so she could look up at him as if she was just a child again. Softly, she said, Hello, Daddy. And the store window exploded, and all those gleaming knives and cleavers came flying at Jack. He managed to knock most of them out of the way, all the while shouting, Jeannie, don't go! I can help you! But not all. A carving knife and a long, pronged fork hit his face, and he screamed in pain. No, he thought. Not again. He looked away, lost focus for just a moment, and when he turned back, she was gone. He touched his face to see how much damage the Geist had done, only to discover there was no blood, no fresh wounds just the hardened scars of an attack long ago. So Handsome Johnny was gone, and he was himself again, Scar-Faced Jack, Johnny Ugly, Johnny Lonesome. "'Mr. Shade!' a man called, and when he turned to see who it was, he discovered himself awake, back in the Barlow Bedroom." with the client himself trying the locked door and yelling, Mr. Shade, are you all right? I heard noises. Jack sat up and discovered books scattered on the bed and the floor around it, bestsellers and art books from the low decorator bookshelf opposite the bed. They must have flung themselves at him while he slept. Could a poltergeist operate from a dream? I'm all right, he said loudly. Go back to bed, Mr. Barlow. We'll talk in the morning. When he heard Barlow leave, Jack lay on the bed, ignoring the books as he tried to steady his breath and lower his heart rate. Genia, he whispered. He thought, as he did so often, of the early days when cups or plates started crashing on the floor and then the coffee table flung itself across the room and all the drawers of his wife's dresser smashed into the wall above the bed. He remembered how Layla had screamed. She couldn't stand it anymore. Jack had to do something. How he'd held her, told her, with all the reassurance of his great knowledge, his experience as a traveler, that it was just a phase, that doing something would only strengthen it. If you left them alone, Geist's just faded away. Lying in his client's bed, remembering, Jack felt the tears slide down his cheeks until they hit the dead crevices of his scars. He lay there until dawn, eyes on the ceiling as he waited until first light would allow him to get up and take the final step before he could leave the gray house. Once he was sure the sun had come up, he went into the oversized, lifeless bathroom where he washed his face and got dressed, all but his shirt. On his way back from the bathroom, he noticed something odd, a small black leather copy of McGregor Mather's translation of the 15th century manuscript, The Book of the Sacred Magic, of Abra Mellon the Mage. He smiled. Maybe Alice had advanced beyond the dabbler stage. She must have hidden this behind the big showy art books, or she could count on William, never noticing it. Softly, Jack said, You deserve better than the forest, Alice. I'm coming for you. Back at the bed, he set down a small black rectangular leather case he'd brought with him from the hotel. Various instruments lay inside it, only one of which he needed a black knife, unadorned, with a polished ebony handle and a double edged carbon blade exactly five inches long. He held it up and stared at it a while as he turned it in the morning light. Then he cut a shallow line along the inside of his arm. There was a network of such lines, light scars, and Jack had often wondered if some doctor, or even a cop, if Jack was ever careless enough to get arrested, might think he was a junkie, or self-destructive. He watched the fresh cut, slowly ooze with blood, then took a deep breath and finally spit into the wound. Jack had to grip his thighs to keep from crying out. There was always pain, but this? The action had begun when Jack had shared that simple glass of water with Barlow back in the office. There'd been nothing in the water, but Jack had charged it to align the two of them so that his own etheric pulse would hold some of the client's bond with his dead wife. When he spit into the cut, he temporarily untied himself with Barlow so that the wound could call out to Alice. It was the surest way to find her in the confusion of the forest. The action was never easy. It was like injecting himself with someone's grief or fear or guilt, but he could never remember it hitting this hard. When the pain subsided enough that he could breathe a little easier, he discovered his face wet with tears and sweat. He went into the bathroom and washed again, then put on his shirt, packed his knife, and left the house, hopefully without waking his client. At 9.47 in the morning, lonesome Jack Shade stood on Lexington Avenue, north of 72nd Street, and watched a slim young man open the door to Laurentian chocolates. Along with his all-black clothes, Jack wore the carbon-blade knife in a sheath up his left sleeve. Jack knew he should go get what he needed before the shop filled with customers, but he hated what he had to do. He wondered, did chocolate shop owners around the city all talk to each other? Would Monsieur Laurentian see Jack's knife? roll his eyes and say, "'Oh, it's you.' Or would he just moo in fear, like the last poor truffle-maker?' Jack sighed. At least he could disguise himself. He pretended it was to escape detection, but he knew it was really to lessen the embarrassment of what he was about to do. He slipped the knife from its sheath and stared at the point so sharp it could cut sunshine. In two quick touches, he lightly pressed the point against his forehead and then his lips. He cried out loudly enough that a woman walking five dogs turned around and stared at him, and a bike messenger reflexively shouted, Fuck you, man! Gently, Jack moved his fingertips around his face, feeling a smooth, plastic quality that told him the trick had worked. Once it firmed up, his false face would look so bland that Laurent Shawn would not be able to describe Jack at all. I don't know, he'd tell the police if he even bothered to call them. It was just one of those faces, you know, as it wasn't really there. On the street corner, Jack touched his nose, his cheeks, the area around his lips, It still felt like some opaque plastic mask, but it held firm against his prodding. He crossed the street toward Laurentian Chocolates. He was nearly at the door when he felt a light brush against his legs. He glanced down, and there was the golden tail, its tip just leaving his left knee unlike at the poker table where the fox had vanished almost before Jack caught sight of it, it turned to sit on its haunches right in the middle of the sidewalk, its fur dazzling in the sun. No one but Jack could see it. But people automatically walked around it, some squinting at the glare from the invisible fur. One young woman walked by, stopped, and turned to stare right at the spot where the fox sat then shrugged and walked on. You've got a future, Jack thought. With any luck, it'll never find you. Hello, Ray, he said to the fox, who bowed his head a moment. Jack Shade had met Ray on one of his first travels when he found himself in a bad place, surrounded by, of all things, predator chickens. He did an action for help, and Ray appeared. A fitting protector, Jack supposed. Now, Ray came to him mostly to warn him or show him things. The name was Jack's choice, short for Reynard, of course, but also the correct pronunciation of Ray, the Egyptian sun god. For in the catalogue of foxes, mountain fox, fox of the willows, fox of the stairways, tracker fox. Ray was a noon fox, a solar helper, bringing clarity and strength. Thanks for being here, Jack said. You know I hate this part. It's so damn embarrassing, but what can I do? I've got to give the doorman what he wants. Ray stared at him a while longer, then leaped off the curb to vanish in front of a taxicab, whose driver hit the brakes, then looked confused before he sped up again. The owner of the chocolate shop appeared to be around 22, but was probably 10 years older. In black creased pants, shiny wingtips, and a gray vest over his pale blue shirt, he looked as old-fashioned and immaculate as his glass display cases, filled with exotic concoctions. He looked Jack up and down briefly, his expression confused as he tried to focus on the face that wasn't quite a mask, then more relaxed again as he let his eyes move back to Jack's muscular upper body and thighs. "'Good morning,' he said with a smile. "'You're my first, at least for today,' blank-faced Jack pointed to a tray of dark chocolate truffles covered in chocolate powder. "'I'll have one of those,' he said. Mr. Laurentian nodded his appreciation of Jack's good taste certainly, he said. Shall I put it in a presentation box? Yes, thank you. Jack watched Laurentian carefully set the truffle in a miniature cardboard box, which he tied with a red ribbon in a slight twirl of his hand. Thank you, he said. That will be seven ninety-five. With a sigh, Jack slipped the black knife from the sheath in his sleeve, and pointed the tip at Laurentchon's neck. "I'll just take it," he said. "Oh, oh, God!" the chocolatier said. "Take whatever I've got. I mean, there's not much. I just opened, but take it, whatever's in the register." "I just want the truffle," Jack said. The young man froze, as if stuck in the strange moment. Then he said. Of course. Yes, let me get a bag. I'll put all the truffles. No, just this one. What? Are you It's only 7.95. I said you could He stopped himself, realizing he was trying to argue an armed robber into taking more than he wanted. It was a reaction Jack had seen before. "Here," Don Juan said, he thrust the small box at Jack, who grabbed it and ran from the store. A principle of opposites governed the entryways to what an old German traveler once called nonlinear locations, opposites and doorways. In New York City, you entered the Forest of Souls in a garage on 54th Street through a red metal door marked Employees Only. As with every other NLL entrance, you couldn't get through unless you paid the doorman. In the Empire garage, this job fell to a white-haired gentleman named Barney. And Barney liked chocolates. Stolen chocolates. When Jack began his travels, Barney demanded nothing more than chocolate kisses. Just one each time. He used to pull the little ribbon top and smile as the foil came away. As he popped the brown cone in his mouth, he would nod to Jack, to go on through. The nice thing about chocolate kisses is that they were easy to steal. But then a couple years ago, Barney had gone upscale. Jack had heard that some Wall Streeter had taken up traveling after the credit swap bubble burst and had ruined things for everybody by giving Barney his first dark chocolate delight. Now it had to be a truffle. Fresh. And it had to be stolen. Why can't I just buy you one? Jack asked him once. Barney had smiled. Money comes and goes, Jack. Silver paper. Even beads sometimes. You got money, you never know what you got. But stealing is forever. He found Barney, as always, sitting on a steel chair against the wall of the garage. Alongside the door he protected. He wore a blue shirt and pants with Empire Garage in italics on the right pocket, and Barney, in gold script, on the left. He was short, about five eight, and stocky, but not fat. He had a full head of fine white hair cut short, and a square face with enough fine lines in it that it might have served as a map of the nonlinear worlds. Jack had no idea how long the old man had served as doorman. Fifty years, five thousand years. Maybe the first Manhattan traveler had found a white-haired man in a beaver cloak sitting on a tree stump next to a cave that served as entrance to the forest. Or maybe Barney would get the job next week. Nonlinear employment. One time, just to see what would happen, Jack had asked the cashier about the old guy who just sits in a chair upstairs. Oh, that's Barney, the man said. Well, what does he do? He doesn't seem to ever leave his spot. The cashier looked confused. In a tone that suggested Jack had asked a really dumb question, he said, I don't know. He's Barney. Today, Jack walked up with a smile, waiting for Barney's usual, Hey, kid. But instead, the doorman tilted his head to the side slightly and squinted at Jack like he was trying to make out who he was. Can I help you? He said. Jack stared at him. Barney? It's me, Jack Shade. Barney shook his head, then laughed. Jack! He said. Sorry, kid. My old eyes ain't what they used to be, I guess. Jack touched his face to make sure the mask was gone. And in fact, for just a moment he thought he felt smooth skin. But no, there were the scars. He said, It's probably just me, Barney. I had to dupe my face for something, and there's probably traces of the overlay still on it. Barney nodded. Ah, that must be it. Jack said, I've got something for you. Hey, you're all right, Jack, Barney said, as he took the box and undid the ribbon. Ah, Charlie Lawrence, he said. You know he calls himself Charles Laurentian now? He pronounced it Charles Laurent Jean in the worst French accent Jack had ever heard. I guess whatever sells product, right, Jack? He smiled at the candy in its gold foil nest. You know, Jack, you've got taste. That's what I tell the others. Jack Shade, I tell him. He knows what to bring an old man. Biting down, he waved Jack to the door.
4: Might I add in here a da-da-da? Don't forget to tune in next week for the conclusion. And now on to our second story. It's a stunning little piece called Gathering Rosebuds of Rust by Nicola Belt. Nicola lives in Birmingham in the UK and is a part-time MA student, part-time factotum and an in-between-time writer of weird things. Say hello at nicolabelt.blogspot.com or on Twitter at nicolabelt. Belt. It is very ably narrated for us by Sarah Fredrickson. Sarah was born in Oregon and raised in beautiful Minnesota. At a young age she realised her passion for musical performance and the creative arts, and she spent most of her childhood singing and acting, both on stage and off, and affecting various accents for fun. She now resides in sunny Australia with her handsome husband, going on adventures, writing music and reading stories to their cat. And here it is. Gathering Rosebuds of Rust. By Nicola Belt.
0: His reputation preceded him. Each letter of his name was a polished pearl upon a string, the tongue a pink velvet pad beneath them. Fathers grew nervous, mothers swooned. The hair of young ladies sprung overnight into curls. The eyes of young gentlemen narrowed with suspicion. My mother rushed around the parlor, spraying herself with icy water as she tried to bleed the blush from her cheeks. She couldn't look too desperate. We couldn't, she said, meaning me. She frowned as she straightened down my dress, like I was a little girl. And that was the problem. I wasn't. I was twenty-five and unmarried. I had poise, piano skills, and pretty fingers pricked from many an embroidery needle. But not a husband. No longer a debutante. I was just a debt. He's here! The cook bellowed, like a beast from Bakersville, making my mother and me jump. Show some decorum, Mary! My mother admonished her before yanking up her petticoats and pushing and pulling me outside. He had wavy dark hair that was parted in the middle, and a thick mustache that curled up at the ends. He bounced over as if on springs, wildly waving his ruby-tipped cane as he saw us, threshing all the tulips from their stems. "'A pleasure, Miss Buzzlesby,' he said as he bowed to kiss my hand as his nose burrowed along my bodice, as his ear found my bosom. My mother spluttered, Mary coughed, a horse whinnied. I tried to protest, but he pressed a finger to my lips and waved his cane like a metronome. Tick, 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 the tip blurring as it quickened. Was it fear? Desire? or just because I knew what was in his locked leather hold-all. Mm, he said. "'Is she suitable?' my mother asked, desperately, and then grimaced, as if she'd swallowed a fly. Mm. He worked on me all night, splattered his demented visions across the pale pink canvas of my skin, leaving it bloodied and bruised, "'coated in candle wax and soldering fluid. "'I ran my fingers around the bumpy rectangle of stitches on my chest, "'around the tiny keyhole in the center, "'rimmed with purple and yellow, "'over my brand-new heart. "'Every morning,' he said, "'as he looped a small copper key onto a thin gold chain "'and placed it around my neck. You must open it up and wind it back, and, my dear, then you'll be young and pretty forever. You'll have years to find a husband. I trembled. I felt sick. I couldn't yet. A Proposal He'd liked the way that my old heart had felt as he'd cradled it in his bloody palms, liked its weight, just before he'd thrown it away. "'Ruddy, unprofessional,' Mary harumphed. "'Fate,' my mother said, picking at her threadbare shawl, relieved that he'd waived the bill. I didn't know or care either way. "'Every morning I slid my fingers inside my chest "'and gave three sharp turns to reverse the cogs. "'Every night I'd lay out the gifts that he'd given me, "'the red roses and the beautiful emeralds and the satin gowns, "'and I'd feel confused, "'like a child who'd untied the silver bows "'and teased open all the pretty boxes, "'only to find them empty.' I was convalescing, he told me. It would take a while, and he chuckled and waved away my impatience, for hadn't he given me all the time in the world? I was numb the day that we married, stiff at his side with my bright, painted smile like a wooden figurine on a chalet clock. He does. He did. Do I? Yes? Now. Mary creaks in with the soup. From the far end of the long table he calls, Happy Anniversary! Our two children are dining with us, both sitting with their elbows up and their napkins spread across their laps. Edward and Jane. Their names should be italicized latinized like a species their strange silent moths always fluttering behind me with their long pale limbs and their desperate eyes trying to find a flame that isn't there delicious he shouts over dabbing at his graying beard yes i reply marveling at my smooth reflection in the back of the silver spoon. Yawns cuckoo from my mouth as he rattles on about the women he's transforming, the lonely lives that he's transfusing with hope, the glorious weddings that we've been invited to. Her mother was delighted, he says, and stops. "'the M-word stuck in his throat like a (sighs) fishbone. "'Sorry,' he coughs. "'He needn't worry. "'It's been a month since we buried my mother, "'a month since my minor malfunction, "'a month since my heart had broken down. "'As we'd stood at her grave, "'a sonorous gong had seemed to emanate from the very pit of my stomach. I yelped, jerked forward, clutched my chest as the mourners, mistaking my outburst for grief, turned to me, relief embroidered all around their sympathetic faces. My heart was ticking furiously, as if about to detonate, "'and I grappled for breath as the sky span "'and the tombstones blurred "'and as my feet gave way on the grass. "'The congregation gasped. "'The priest's prayers stopped. "'My husband thrust his cold hands under my arms, "'trying to hoist me up, to help me. "'But his touch made me howl, cry out, "'made me think I could tear it out. This wretched thing, I could bury it here, let it wind down forever, let it rest among the bones. But then it juddered, clicked, resumed its normal rhythm, and it has been fine ever since. Mary pours the custard, and I smile at her, and at him, and at my Edward and Jane and they all smile back. My heart tick-tock ticks in the silence of our swallows. On and on it goes. No need to apologize, dear. It's fine. Really, I say. And it is. I don't feel a thing.
4: Oh, I do love steampunk. Tick-tock, tick-tock. That brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing it and no selling it. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be here next week with more fantastic fantasy, giving you the opportunity to have a bevy and a chance to relax. Until then...